welcome to Lessons from History. Labour's pledge to instate VAT on school fees has ensured that independent schools are never far from the news. In this episode, we consider the health of the sector and how it might respond to this and the many other challenges it faces. Our guest is Patrick Darham, who, over the course of his 40-year teaching career, has been headmaster of three prominent and distinctive public schools, Solihull, Rugby and Westminster. Patrick has strong views on widening access to independent schools, which led him to create the Arnold Foundation in 2003 and helped found the Springboard Bursary Foundation, now the Royal National Children's Springboard Foundation. Both charities provide bursaries to enable children from underprivileged backgrounds to attend independent boarding schools. But Patrick, your own educational story is a really fascinating one, and I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about your initial experiences of schooling. Absolutely, but thank you both for inviting me along. It's um, great to be with you. It's always good to talk about things educational. Although I sound incredibly posh and well-spoken, I'm really not. And uh, I've had a very unusual upbringing. I had seven different schools before I was 12 years old. And the product of an army family was part of the reason. But the other reason was my family was slightly dysfunctional on, on one level. And at the age of 12, um, I was sent to the training ship Arethusa, which was run by the Shaftesbury Home, so prominent charity. And I was living on board an old four-masted bark, permanently moored on the River Medway, opposite Chatham Dockyard. And that was my school. And we lived on board. We only went ashore one afternoon a week, unless you were lucky enough to be ill, because the infirmary sanatorium was on the land and I had the happiest week of my life in those two years was when I had flu and I was there to watch the 1973 FA Cup final which is seared in my (laughs) memory as as a very happy experience and it was an extraordinary moment in my life really because I was going to join the Navy at 16, 17 and and, and it it was a very unorthodox education, um, quite active as you can imagine, things very nautical. Uh, but in October 74, the ship closed down overnight because the charity, it was a very expensive ship, I think, to run and it was bleeding the charity funds dry. And so the captain superintendent said to me, Darren, have you heard of public school? To which I said, fairly obviously, no. And um, the next hour is at Pangbourne, um, which is again an independent school, a public school, but one with a naval tradition. And um, I joined halfway during the first term. It's not an easy time to join a school. I, I spoke with a very different accent to this. I was pretty poorly educated. I'd done no science. Arithmetic, we called it. English, no languages. It was, it was a pretty inadequate education. And um, within two weeks, I spoke like this. And uh, my life was transformed by that opportunity because I just couldn't believe that learning could be so much fun and that they were surrounded by people who actually wanted to learn and so I was very very lucky I did appallingly at O level but did pretty well at A level and um, ended up as head of head of school um, and ended up at Cambridge first person in my family to go to university so my whole life was transformed by education which is why I'm so passionate about that whole idea of, of, of the transformation that a real education can provide and um, Sort of what upsets me most, of course, is that those opportunities are denied to the majority of people. But that's something I'm sure we'll talk about in the fullness of time. Do you have any teachers that really stand out in your memory? 
I do, and um, you know, the, the great Yates thing about lighting the fire, I mean, without any doubt at all. I mean, I, I, I think his name was Mr Fox, it might have been Captain Fox, I can't remember, but the English teacher, um, or civics teacher on the Arethusa would give me books, and in my hammock at night with a torch, I would escape into, a, into that wonderful world that literature can provide. So I became an avid reader from the age of 12 onwards. And interestingly, where my mum was living in, in a pretty grim council estate in, in Scotland, my refuge was the public library. So I'm a great fan of libraries um, and the opportunity that they provide. So yes, yeah, so without doubt, um, he was hugely influential. But the two great figures, really, and almost father-like figures, were my headmaster, Peter Points, and my housemaster, Peter Pollitzer, who also taught me history. And I had the privilege of speaking at both their memorial services in the course of you know, recent years, and was able to, a, to tell my story and b, tell their family, who really knew very little about the difference that their father had made for me. So yes, and then I had an inspiration. I was very fortunate doing A-level English. I had at Penguin, it's extraordinary, I had an American and, a, and an Irish English teacher. So it's crazy to think of it now, but I was introduced to James Joyce in the sixth form at Pangbourne and um, it absolutely hooked. And of course it was completely inappropriate for the Pangbourneians to be, be reading Ulysses and, and, and we read a little bit of Finnegan's Wake. Governors was probably okay, but, but those were a bit, bit daunting. But this guy was in, inspirational. But the American teacher, who I kept in touch with after I left, was, again, breathtaking in his breadth of knowledge. And he was a teacher in the sense that the, the sort of thing that I've always wanted to encourage with the teachers that have worked for me, in that he wasn't didactic. He allowed us to think that our views were as important as his, which, of course, is true. And although we were pretty naive, I suspect, in our interpretation of quite a lot of what we were reading, he was incredibly kind and guided and nudged us and really made us think. And it was a close-run thing. I, mean, I, was, I was sorely tempted to do English at university, but because of my Irish roots, I was pretty passionate about Irish history and wanted to discover all sorts of truths. So I was brought up, slight digression, I was brought up, my Irish grandmother was, not, was a pretty difficult person and she lived in abject poverty in, in a thigh in County Kildare and I was brought up believing that we had once owned land in the 19th century and it was the English rack-renting bastards, as she called them, that had seized our land and so I believe this because obviously if you're told it often enough you know, it, it sort of sinks in. So part of my motivation for studying history was to explore that um, area and of course well not of course but Cambridge in those days or very few institutions did Irish history of course I mean, Oxford was a bit more enlightened but it would have been better to go to Oxford but I insist on being taught Irish history because I discovered that the most benign landlords in 19th century Ireland were actually in County Kildare so she'd lied to me but or had she lied to me because she was virtually illiterate so the oral tradition, she's probably been brought up to believe exactly the same thing. So that's, that's my motivation for studying history. And of course, one of the consequences when I was a young teacher, um, I edited a book of documents on, on, on the Irish question in the 19th century, the Home Rule Crisis, and wrote an A-level paper because I was so fed up of the ignorance of people in this country about things to do with Ireland. 
um, and the majority of my schoolmates and so even members of staff I worked with were sort of seemingly unaware that Northern Ireland was part of this country. Um, and so, it, so that, that was quite an interesting exercise. So I, so I think my motive, the reason why I did history was primarily because, that, because my mother's Dutch. And of course, the Dutch people had such an extraordinary history. My mum grew up under Nazi occupation in Rotterdam and left school at the age of 12. And again, not really, when you're young, being able to process that or understand it. It was quite interesting you know, towards the end of my mum's life. She died just over a year ago trying to get her to talk about um, her experiences and that oral tradition that oral history it's so important that we do record people's thoughts so yes I mean I, I was very very lucky with great teachers um, and um, uh, but probably on balance my English teachers were better than my history teachers and I, I think part of the reason why I wanted to teach was I couldn't believe that such an intrinsically interesting subject could be taught badly and so I made, I, you know, my mission, not like my hero Gladstone, wasn't quite to pacify Ireland, but was to make history teaching relevant. Because I still feel like I'm meeting people who said they hated history because they were so badly taught at school. Did you ever find out how you came to go to Pangbourne? Because presumably not all of the children from the Arethusa ended up at Pangbourne. I, I did, and uh, I contacted Pangbourne and got my file, which made some pretty interesting reading, um, because I... Um, I was able to read about their assessment of me as a pretty bedraggled 14-year-old. And then I actually read my um, UCAS reference, which was quite interesting too. <laughs> and, but yes, I did. So I, I, um, uh, it's an extraordinary story. My, my fees were paid by an American who had been married. She'd been married to an Arethusa boy. And um, he died and she devoted a lot of her philanthropic giving to support Ari boys. And um, when the Arethusa closed, the Americans bought it and it was at South Street Seaport and they were they took it back to its original name, which was the P. King. And they had all sorts of wacky ideas about like a sort of a floating disco party ship. But a little bit of, of, the, of, the, of the ship was a memorial to the school. And I spoke on the Arethusa or the Peking as it then was in New York, reasonably often, and rather curiously it tended to be to um, women's groups. And I consoled myself with the fact that she must have heard me speak because she died a few months before I discovered the, who it was. And so I never had the chance to say thank you. And that, again, had a huge impact on my thinking in terms of setting up bursary programmes that, particularly in the world now where we're governed by safeguarding, but there are ways in which one can not have a relationship with the donor, but at least have the chance to say thank you, which I think is very important. At what point did you decide you wanted to have a career in education? <laughs> That's such an interesting question because I'm pretty sure that from an early... Well, from an early age, I was under quite a lot of pressure from my father to go into the army, and he didn't think I was manly enough to do it, so... Um, I took the army, although he wasn't an officer, he was an ordinary soldier, almost to shut him up. I took the army officer selection test and was offered a cadetship um, to go to university, which obviously I turned down pretty promptly, and had a bursary, which I paid back when I left Cambridge. So that was never a serious proposition. It was quite interesting. When I got into Cambridge, Peter Point said to me, what are you going to do for the rest of the year? Because I had no idea how the university year worked. I just assumed that university ran in a calendar year. So I couldn't go home. So he said, why don't you go and work in a prep school? And I said, well, what's a prep school? And so I did my gap year 
working at, at two prep schools. It was a world I had read about in the Jennings and Derbyshire books and, and things like that. So I sort of, sort of, I couldn't really believe that these places existed, but, but they did. So it was, an, it was a fascinating experience. And it's an interesting thing about teaching, which I think is like in any job, it's made by the people you work with. And, and at Cheam, there's this most extraordinary collection of really talented, really interesting staff who I just got on with very, very well. So every summer, because the Cambridge term was so short, I'd go back to Cheam and I'd be paid to sort of coach athletics and, and teach the scholars. And it's, it's almost an extraordinary story, but it's absolutely true. Michael Wheeler, the head, drove up to Cambridge and took me out to lunch and said, do you fancy a job? And so without really much thought, I said, yeah, OK because I was under pressure to stay and do research at Cambridge or, or to go to Trinity in Dublin, which I probably should have done to do some Irish history. But I sort of knew my own limitations, that I wasn't very good, A, with my own company, and B, I didn't think I'd have the patience um, or, the, or the commitment to see through a real research project. So I just said yes. And so, of course, when I told the Dons who were teaching me, they were, they were pretty gobsmacked, to use current parlance, that I was going to do that. But the point I would say that those two years teaching at Cheam, my first two years of teaching, I learned more about history than I had in three years of studying history at Cambridge, because you had, in those days you had to teach the whole of history. So from the youngest age you started at the beginning, and then in those days you sort of just went up to post-Victorian and then the outbreak of World War One. but it was a fascinating, fascinating time. And so that's how, how I got into it. But the funny thing too, when I, I, I joke about this with friends when, when we meet up in Cambridge. We were there at the time when the, the, the graduate centre or the career centre, sorry, had just opened and this is a very trendy thing to go and get careers advice. And I took one of those sort of psychometric tests which gave you your top three professions that you were ideally suited for. And my first one was university lecturer, second one was secondary school teacher and third was primary school teacher. So I think it was probably the right, the, the right career decision. I have no regrets. So about doing it. So you started out teaching in a prep school? Yeah, two years. Yeah, so so the, um, up to age 13. So yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But were the Jennings books a, a good guide to that? or It sort of made you realise, in those days, I mean, the good risk was a much greater part of children's lives. There was simply one person on duty at the weekend, and you'd have several hundred boys, boys only, playing around, climbing trees, playing in the woods. I mean, it was idyllic on one level. But the idea of a seven-year-old going away to board in a dormitory, which in those days were not decorated, was pretty stark. And, and I found that quite, quite an eye-opener for me. But the people who worked there um, and their passion for their subjects and, and for, for the boys' well-being was fantastic. And interestingly, I'm still in touch with some of the staff from there and actually in touch with some of the pupils I taught, um, which I think is, you know, again, a testament, a testament to the school. But the reason why I stopped teaching at a prep school was I mean, I've, I've always been slightly difficult. Um, I was on duty one Sunday and sat down in, in the common room to have a cup of tea. I was actually exhausted, been on the go all day. And two doors, and I was just sitting there, this door opened, and it was the headmaster who shouted at me for what was I doing, what was I think I was doing, I was on duty. So I picked up the TES, which I'd never read in my entire life, saw a job at Radley, where my best friend at Cambridge had been, and I applied for the job, and that was it. Great. So um, it, so that's how I ended up in secondary schools. And you were talking about the curriculum that you taught then, and I, I'm guessing that prep schools, common entrance is a, a really big deal, and yeah. that's quite a sort of 1066 and all that curriculum, a sort of grand, grand sweep of history. Yeah, it right? is, yeah. very much yeah. so. And um, yeah. But again, I was quite 
um, surprised by the assessment process. So one of the things I did when I moved to Radley was lead the revolution in reforming common entrance history and introduce source material and questions on evidence. And I had a, a fascinating, I wish I'd kept a diary, I had a fascinating time where I went on this road trip, train trip around outlying parts of the country talking to prep school history teachers about the changes and it was like I was the devil because <laughs> people who've been teaching in a particular way for so long to be told that actually there's a bit more to history than just learning essays. Um, but it was great. But I learned a lot from that process about the assessment process and you know, what's important and the fact that essentially we're still operating in a pretty 19th century style and common entrance has changed a lot since then and quite a few independent schools don't do, use it anymore, do they? That's right. And yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a little bit like a forerunner of the schools that are yeah. dropping GCSE. Um, they feel that it's it's an exam that's not fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, at a school like Westminster, it wasn't... The place had been offered on a pre-test. So in a sense, it, it wasn't just a, a selective exam. It was, it was just there, if you like, for setting purposes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not completely sort of uh, au fait with this, but it does feel like a few, quite a few prep schools and, and senior independent schools are maybe not having as much history as a, a part of the entrance exam. Is, is that something you've, you've seen? Or? Well, I think it's an inter- it's an interesting thing about what's what's important to assess, isn't it? Yeah. I've experienced enough and lived through quite a lot, and, I, and I'm very conscious of the argument that people teaching what might be perceived as minority subjects that pupils wouldn't take them seriously if they weren't examined. And that's the awful world that we live in, mm. that you know, there's, there's this idea that's mm. somehow lodged in, in too many people that for something to be worthwhile, it has to be examined. Because as we all know, that's just complete nonsense. But, but for people who feel that their subject is under threat, I can understand why they would argue passionately mm. for it. And of course, what we've seen in, in, in recent decades is this real drift towards STEM subjects. Yes. Uh, particularly post-16. So in, in a sense, the arguments for really fighting your corner to preserve you know, certain subjects as part of the curriculum. I get it, but it's. I think the best schools find ways in which they can broaden the scientists, the narrow, the narrow scientists, into exposing them to the best of the humanities and actually people doing pure humanities should be exposed to science. And math. So we might talk about you know, schools choosing what they feel is right for their pupils. And, it, and we're living through very interesting times, aren't we, with the current Prime Minister mm. declaring that you know, we're going to see a major reform to A-levels if they survive, are in power long enough to enact it, of course, which is one of the problems we have with our education policy. Everything is dependent on the electoral cycle. So it's a very interesting, I mean, it's a very interesting debate. And, you know, and but then there isn't, and you know, the two of you would know this, there isn't really a country in the world which thinks it's got its education right to actually prepare, to equip people with the right skills to make them fit for purpose in what is a rapidly changing world that young people are going into. I think that's very true about other countries. You, 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 a lot of the countries you look to and think, oh, they've got it right, you go there and they're very critical of themselves. So, well, they are. It's, and, yeah, it's no, no, one, no one thinks they've got it right. No, everyone's, I, everyone's critical of themselves. And yeah. It's good to remember that when we're being critical of ourselves. Yeah, and I think sometimes we're overly critical, but I do think that But you know, one of the things that 
partly because of my background and the charity work that I've done, I get so, I'm I'm really, and COVID hasn't helped, but the gap between the privileged and the not privileged, however you choose to define that in terms of access to education, wealth, family or whatever, but it's just grown. Um, And for a lot of children, I mean, they're already behind by the time they get to school. And so the one thing the Scandinavians get right is the heavy investment in preschool. You know, and my Dutch family didn't go to school till much later than, and so there, there are subtle differences in approach. But for me, you know, there has to be a long-term investment, and we have to really invest at the key stages. And of course, education—it's just you know, we're all involved, you know, in, in in lifelong learning. And I think it's become even more relevant now than it ever was certainly in my time, and even in your time, because the world is so rapidly changing outside, and people just don't do one job like they used to do. So I think thinking about what are the right skills for young people to have uh, and to equip them with is hugely important. And some of the more interesting innovations in in, in some senses in the curriculum have come from the independent sector because they have the independence to to challenge and and to question the orthodoxy, the PQ, the extended project, Cambridge Pre-U. Um, Nuffield Science, where they all these are just some examples of things that have come from the independent sector, uh, with varying degrees of success, obviously. Nobody thinks they've got it right. I was in Australia in February, yeah. March, and yeah. they're all sort of looking to the UK. Yeah. And then in the UK, we think everything's terrible. We're looking to Finland. Yeah. Finland have just put out a big, exactly. um, a big thing about how actually perhaps they haven't got it right and they've yeah. got a lot of things wrong. So, but the thing that makes yeah. me smile yeah. is yeah. that people overseas look at A levels as the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's extraordinary, and mm-hmm. and and, yeah. and some okay. of us who've been teaching it just tear our hair out. And we're getting rid of ailers, <laughs> um, and it looks like that's, that might be something where well, we'll see, we'll see, you know, if Labour get in and if they stick with that, but there will be something they stick with. Who yes. knows? Um, and obviously, um, but it is interesting yeah. because when I, I when I look at my own background, because I had such a deficient education, a baccalaureate style exam, I'd have really struggled with post sixteen, you know, being slightly selfish. Um, and my, my, my Dutch family, of course, who went through a much more broad-based curriculum, are horrified that you know, we specialise so early. But again, it comes back to, to the point that you know, the best schools will make sure that you are extending beyond the examined curriculum. You need to have the resource um, and you need to have you know, not just financial resource, but the, the resource of a, of a staff who have the ability to do that. Um, to stretch and challenge. No, I think it's a really good point about, often when you do talk about this, you're right, internationally, uh, we are outliers for letting students have so much choice at 16. Yes. It's really rare. Yeah. But because we've all gone through that system, <laughs> we've, all, we've all, you know, in the UK, we've all done A-levels, uh, I think we all remember being 16 and liking giving subjects up. Yeah. <laughs> and actually taking away that freedom. Yeah. People often you wouldn't, wouldn't like. What did, what did you do for A-levels? What were you? I did yeah. English, History, Economics and Politics. Right, yeah. Um, Which under any kind of um, continental or most international systems, you just wouldn't be allowed to do. <laughs> no, exactly. But the interesting <laughs> but thing... But you enjoyed it. I, I did, yeah. but, but what was yeah. interesting, but, yeah. I, but you can't study history unless you understand art and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was interesting, the history I did, when I look back, it was done in such a sort of... Na- it was all high politics... And, you know, and, and the, the thing that I'm you know, passionate about is you know, the experience of ordinary people um, in history are as important as the so-called great men and great women. I, I remember being faintly irritated in, in the lessons I had at school and thinking this cannot be right. 
that we're only talking about people with a narrow influence here. You know, we're sitting here in Westminster. But actually, you know, what impact are things that happen in the centre? What impact is having elsewhere? When you look at French history, I mean, you know, what happens in Paris is just not reflected you know, down by the Mediterranean, the Greater Nile School of History. I mean, it's just it's such an interesting thing. So for me, you know, the best history is where you're talking about the art, you're talking about the culture, you're talking about the science. The, the sort of atomization of the curriculum or the narrow silos but have to be dismantled and, and no subject is standalone. Everything is interconnected, as we know, from the lives we lead. From your description, you almost fell into teaching and, and teaching in the independent sector. And, of course, the, the context of that changed very markedly from, you know, from the beginning of your career to the end of your career. And I just wonder... If you were starting out your career as a teacher today, whether you would have made the same choices? It's such a good question. It's the question I get asked all the time whenever I, I talk on these things. And, and, and I'm completely divided um, on this. And I mean, I sort of stumbled into the independent sector almost by mistake without really being fully aware of it. In my early days, I did probably challenge myself enough on it, except... In, in the sense that I kept questioning the entitlement and, and the, in, the inbuilt privilege. But I, I like to think, and particularly my sort of 24 years of being ahead, that because of the way I've acted and what I've spoken about, what I've done, I've tried to inculcate in the pupils a sense that with the privilege of a, a liberal, liberating education, there's a real responsibility to give back. And I hope that those pupils... I've got a sense of that, and will then act in an enlightened way. Now, that's not to say if I'd gone into, into the state system, I couldn't have done the same. Um, but I think that there's the potential of this ripple effect of meaningful change. I've helped it a little bit more by some of the people that I've taught, and actually what's pleased me most are the number of ex-pupils who, in a sense, have gone into careers or have done things that very much resonate with sort of my own values and therefore they are making a difference and they are trying to change things. So I think that that is, is the way that I sort of wrestle with my conscience on it. And I think, I think if, if we had a blank sheet of paper, we wouldn't design the education system that we have today. I don't think anybody would come up and think this is a really good idea. But in a very English, and I use that quite carefully, because, because in a sense England is a country that historically it's all about evolution rather than revolution. Why did, why did this country not have you know, a major revolution? And, and, and so things just keep evolving. And so I think that's, that's for me, is important that we live in a world where we have got to think what is right for the majority of people. And so the independent schools have a huge part to play in that and I think the one good thing in my time as a head is there's been a, a greater recognition of that and, and schools are doing more positive things for the greater good than they have done in the past um, though I would instantly put a caveat on that because of course a lot of the so-called great schools were founded as charitable institutions of course and, and too many of them lost their way so I think putting it in a slightly different way more schools have reconnected with their roots and recognised that their historical, the reason for their existence, you know, the lesson from history is that they have got to go back and, and, and do 
what their original founders' wishes were. So I think you know, that's, I'm conscious it's a very woolly answer to your very good question. And, and, and it's something that I do wrestle with interminably, that I sleep easy because I'm, I'm conscious of the things that I'm trying to do, the impact, you know, but not sounding in any way arrogant, that the staff who've worked for me, but the pupils who've been products, the sort of things that they've gone on and done, I think is a good thing. And that's all that one can hope for in trying to make a difference. You've worked at a number of different independent schools. Mm. And obviously you started out at prep school, yep. um, which for yeah people who aren't aware, it's the, obviously it's the under 13, yes. is that right? Yep. Yeah, when yep. you were, yeah. Uh, in those days, just those days. 13, Seven, but yeah. now they've tended, because prep schools are very much under threat, yeah. they've had to go much lower yeah. or stop at 11. So, and then you went to senior schools, you went to Radley, and I think one of the things we've talked about is that independent schools cover a lot yep. of... Of, 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 of different different beasts yes. <laughs> they're not all the same and from the outside it's easy to say oh in independent school yeah. but there's a big difference from sure. your kind of your small prep school and, yeah. and an Eton yeah. so yeah what are the, the differences between the, the different schools that you were you were headmaster at or yeah. indeed taught at and then you know for, for those people who think the independent schools or public schools are all the same what are the big differences no, that's such a good question and I think the thing that I, that I find most upsetting is that um sector is, is seen as all being like Eton or, or Westminster or Harrow or whatever it happens to be and of course that simply isn't the case I mean of, of the you know, 50% of ISC schools so independent schools have under 250 pupils so they're small they're very small uh, there's only 7% in the last census where they have over a thousand pupils so there's no homogeneity to the sector and of course you have you know, day schools you have you know, single sex which is dying out the co-ed and so on and so forth so I mean the sector is very very different and I get and I get quite cross the press characterizing the sector as all being like Eton and so the whole political mess that we're you know, living through you know, is all blamed at one school near Slough because so many of the recent leaders went there um, I mean I can understand it's very easy to make that there's probably a little bit more to it than that so I think that's the issue so the schools I, I mean they were all just very different I was very very lucky I mean, I mean, Radley was all boys, inspirational head, um, or two heads who I worked for, I learned a great deal from. I was far too young to become headmaster, um, and, uh, and I I'd had no senior management experience, so I had just been a housemaster and head of history, and I suddenly found myself running school of a thousand pupils um, in Solihull, and, uh, that, that, but that was extraordinary when I look back, and they were, they were incredibly kind to me, staff and the pupils. It was a day school, and I hadn't really experienced day schools for such a long time. I, I, I found Saturdays very odd when I could watch sport, but actually I just had it, my whole body clock was geared up to working on a Saturday. But it was an unusual day school. It had two Sunday services and had a very fine choral tradition. That, that's what sort of set it apart. And then going to rugby, and, and that, of course, for me, was a, a turning point because Dr Arnold, you know, one of the great figures of this country's education system, it was a, a real privilege to walk in, in the footsteps of history and, 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 and to be aware of the, the impact, you know, having done educational history, of the impact of the Arnoldian reforms on, on, on the public school system. So that, that was an immense privilege. And then I wasn't going to, because it's very difficult, I think, for heads and, uh, when you change schools, because you have to have a flexibility and a nimbleness to understand that what worked in one institution won't necessarily work in another. Um, and I think one of the mistakes that quite a lot of leaders make, it's not just in education, is, is that inability to adapt to the, the new institution that they're in and they feel that they know what's the right thing. And so I was going to go stop 
because I'm a great rugby fan, I was going to wait till the Rugby World Cup the one eight years ago, and then go to the charity world. And, and but then Westminster, the Westminster job came up, and the headhunters and the team were, were very persuasive. And um, and I don't regret it. It was absolutely blissful because it was just so radically different to any of the other schools that I'd worked in. I think that's what helped me in all my career, from Cheam to Radley to Solihull to Rugby to Westminster. The schools could not be more different. And um, so I was always coming out of my own comfort zone. But the one thing I did do in, in my three schools as a head was teach. I, I thought it was really important to teach an A-level or a pre-U-set, because that's sense what I went into the job to do. It's one of the strange things about education, is that to progress in, in, in that typical way that one you know, deals with ambition is that you have to leave behind a thing that you wanted to do. So the schools are very different, and I think the sector is very, very different. Um, and, and I think that's, that's one of the hardest things for the public to understand, and, and the lazy press and the lazy politicians just assume that all schools have huge endowments, hugely wealthy, and they don't understand that that only applies to a tiny fraction. And if you could give advice to your young self when you first became a headmaster, what, what would that advice be? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> I, just, I was just too young, and I, th- and I think that's the, um, the arrogance of youth. And, but it was do the two heads I worked for basically saying I, I should go and do it and perhaps wait. I should have waited a few years, had some management experience. But no, I think the real advice I'd give to myself was, and I learned it at Solihull, is that... The beauty of mankind is that we're all radically different and not everybody works at my pace. So I, I learned some quite valuable lessons about coming from a very busy boarding school, going to work in a day school. My expectations was that every member of staff would work as hard as I did um, and go beyond. And I learned very quickly that that was completely unrealistic and wrong. And that, um, so that was a very helpful lesson to learn. Um, so... Uh, the impatience of youth. I was a young man in a hurry. Whilst at rugby, you established the Arnold Foundation. I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, when I went to rugby, it is interestingly quite a wealthy school that had a foundation scheme that provided free places for day boys and girls. And, and the historic ruling was within 10 miles of the chapel bells, the boomer. And of course, in, in the days... When Lawrence Sheriff started the school, you could perhaps, well, that wasn't the chapel, you could perhaps have, you know, it was work because it was become quite a built-up area. So we had this extraordinary scheme that came from money, the income came from the London estate. But I thought it was odd that because of its founding by Lawrence Sheriff, you know, the greatest Queen Elizabeth I, to provide these three places that we weren't doing the same in boarding. So I was driven partly by my own personal experience. I was driven by the history of rugby um, by Lawrence Sheriff by Dr Arnold and by some of the great headmasters that had been at rugby. And I said to the governors, why don't we do something completely radical and be the first school to stop giving 100% scholarships? Because I thought that was morally wrong, that wealthy people, you just happen to have the good fortune to have a very clever son or daughter, should not have to pay fees. I I just thought that was wrong. So we were the first school in the country at rugby to reduce scholarships to 10%. I wanted to take it down. To, to nothing um, and, and, and to make it fully means tested so that like a bursary and then I said let's stop this crazy fundraising for one capital project after another let's just completely fundraise for bursaries let's really make a statement so that's what we did so in, in 2003 the Arnold Foundation was launched um, we had this extraordinary concert on, on, on the 4th of May a hot 
day, the whole school was bussed to the Symphony Hall of Birmingham, all moaning and groaning. But in true sort of chartist fashion, I sort of bribed them with an ice cream at the interval. And um, so we, we launched the Arnold Foundation then. And it was a stunning success. And But the, but I knew from my own experience the transformation that that opportunity can provide if you have the right support in place. So it was critical that for me that the people we wanted to reach were ones who wouldn't respond to advertising. Um, so we set about working with charities and organisations who on a daily basis were dealing with social exclusion and underachievement. Rugby school, like so many of the so-called great schools, had club in London, the whole sort of, in a sense, the Toynbee Hall um, part of history. The rugby clubs existed, but had slightly lost direction. And when I went to see them, they pointed me to two streets along in, in, in W11, to a new charity based out of a church, St Clement St James. Uh, and that was inter-university. And so I was involved with inter-university from, from that moment, in the original symposium. You know, Peter Lample, David Lammy, you know, Phil Collins, I mean, some extraordinary people sitting around little primary school chairs um, discussing whether this could be run out. And Inter-University now is the biggest access programme in the country. And it's fantastic. And I'm still involved on the advisory board, um, having stood down as Deputy Chair of Trustees when I left Westminster. So we had links with Eastside Young Leaders, um, extraordinary charity dealing with black boys and girls, arguably on the edge of gang culture. Um, and so that's how we did it. And it, and, it, and it was just fantastic. And, and the donors, you know, both alumni and parents, were hugely, hugely supportive. So it was a great success. But what was really interesting was that once we were established, I spent my entire time giving advice to other schools, to governors, heads, about bursaries. And, and in the end, and we, we kept telling, I spoke to 71 different schools. It was exhausting um, use of my time. So at a governing body strategy meeting, we said, well, can we not create a national charity? And so through connections, McKinsey did this piece of work. Uh, and that essentially led to the creation of, of Springboard, which now, as you said in your introduction, the Royal National Children's Springboard Foundation. And that you know, is, is brilliant, but built, built based on the same principle of working with partners, providing the right quality of pastoral care, trying to involve the parents, making sure that there's this ripple effect of giving back to the community. Um, and, and, and the springboard has been a, been a huge success too and is now um, beginning to move into day schools as well as boarding. But the real transformation, of course, comes from boarding. And for me, it was really important as a principle that we didn't cherry-pick the best from the state system because I don't think that's right on any level. But we wanted to pick the boys and girls who, like myself, needed the stability of boarding to realise their potential. So the whole thing about working with partners is that this two-way process, this demystifying of the institution, so that they trusted us and we trusted them. But it was, it was just a stunning success and the thing, in many ways, that I'm proudest of in my career because it, it sort of led to a whole rethinking in some areas about the approach to access um, and, 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 and making it work. In, in a positive way. And so some of the most interesting things that I've done have been working with partner organisations, all of whom I still keep in touch with and have connections with. You've talked a lot about the efforts you made to improve access and the efforts of these charities. Do you think there's more just generally as a, as a sector that fee-paying schools and independent schools could be doing to improve access? And particularly I'm interested in, you know, it's really interesting what you said about the scholarships that you, you made them means-tested. Do you have any idea of what, what the numbers are on how many schools are needs-blind? Needs-blind is, is an aspiration I think a lot of schools would aspire to 
but of course it, it, it's a fiendishly expensive mm. model. I mean, there are some shiny examples, you know, like Christ Hospital is, is a fantastic example of that. And there are some brilliant examples of like King Edward's Foundation in Birmingham, what Manchester Grammar are doing, what the Bolton schools are doing. So there are some phenomenal things happening. And again, there are school, schools in London too that are doing some great things, you know, like Latimer Upper, you know, and, and Westminster in its own way, is, is, with, with the programs that it's trying to put in place, is working towards that. So um, in answer to your question is that, that there's a huge amount that historically has been going on. Um, you know, even a school like Eton, you know, over 100 pupils are on completely free places and the public just don't know about that. So I mean, there are, there are lots of positive news stories. I mean, in answer to your question about, of course the sector can do more, uh, but I don't think it's true want of trying. It, it is actually, and it's a terrible thing to say, but it's, it's finding the right pupils who will benefit from it. Is, is one of the issues to schools. So that's why Springboard's been such a success because, of course, boarding schools have recognised that and are working with them. But I think it's more than... Because not every school can give free places, but it's, but it's thinking creatively about what is effective partnership work um, that can help make a difference. So whether it is you know, providing teachers, whether it's you know, providing sort of career support, whether it's providing university advice... Right, all the way down to the sharing of facilities is, is actually, it, it covers a whole array of things. And, and again, the thing that's really changed in recent years is that every independent school is, is, is trying to play its part. And for me, the potential unforeseen, one of the unforeseen consequences of you know, Labour's VAT is, of course, that all these programmes will stop. Because of course, the, the the bandwidth that schools will have and, and the cost and the money they will have available for these things will inevitably be reduced. So I think that in twenty four years of being ahead, there's been a huge shift, hugely positive. Schools recognise the part. Of course, in some areas there's more that could be done, but of course it's much easier for a school in the centre of London to be doing outreach work um, than it is for the school tucked away in, in in a rural county. But I think the public again. And, and some politicians don't recognise the extent of the good things that are going on. What would you say to the the governors, maybe the heads or the parents who see that coming down the line and think, well, if we're going to be paying this tax, why should we be trying to increase our charitable endeavours? Why should we be trying to improve access? I think that it's because it's the right thing to do. And, and I think the thing that upset me most... Um, but I mean, the interesting thing about the independent sector it's always been under threat historically there's a book to be written on the great, with the great survivor you know, which has been the public school system because it, you know, for whatever it happens to be there's been, been yeah. one you know, potential body blow after another and yet it's, it, 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 it's showing extraordinary resilience it's like test cricket you yeah. go back to the 1890s, people yeah. are, you know, saying yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or counting cricket it's, exactly. it's never not been under threat exactly. yeah. Yeah. but I think the thing that upset me most is that there, were, there was an argument put out that a lot of schools were doing these things because it was a way of keeping charitable status. I think the big sea change that has happened is that schools are doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. And I think that you know, any parent who is arguing is just detached from reality. We all have a part to play in, in improving the life chances of young people. Can I ask a question about literally about independence? The independence of the independent sector, which is about how, how do schools make those decisions about assessment and exams? Yeah. Because one of the things I'd say, independent schools, by, by you know, including the name, they're independent, they have more freedom yes. than state schools. So state schools are bound by government regulations about what exams they can and cannot take. Independent schools aren't, they can make their own choices. 
And in lots of ways, I, I really celebrate that because I think one of the risks with state schools is that if there are bad ideas coming from the top, they can all go off in one direction sure. and you have nothing left behind. You know, you have, so it's good to have a bit of diversity and pluralism in the system so that not everybody kind of goes down and follows those ideas. Um, but I, I feel like the, the, the things have changed a bit. I feel like maybe 20, 30 years ago, independent schools used their independence to do harder qualifications. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 20, 30 years ago, there were a lot of independent schools opting out of the state GCSE yes. to do the IGCSE yes. maths. And one of the big justifications they gave for it was that there was no coursework. Mm-hmm. And the maths coursework and the science coursework were quite fiddly and quite annoying. And actually doing the IGCSE, it was harder, but it was a better, richer experience. The trend I see at the moment is independence was also using their independence, but in a slightly different way. That it seems to me that they're actually picking some qualifications which, you know, there's some statistical evidence to say are a bit easier. You know, I just wonder, is, does that reflect your experience? And... If it does, you know, what's happened there? Because that feels like quite a big cultural shift from heads going from a situation where they're deliberately picking harder exams to one where they're deliberately picking ones that are easier. Never happened on my watch with my <laughs> students because yeah. uh, yeah. you, choose, yeah. you choose the right, the curriculum that's going to provide the stretch and challenge and best prepare them. I mean, I know that is a feeling in some mm. quarters that that is what is happening. And of course, I could sort of, wearing my historian hat, I can sort of understand the pressure that some heads mm. and schools are under. The curse of league tables. The but, curse, but league the, tables were around 20 or 40 no, years no, ago. No, no, I don't. That's, the curse yeah. of parental pressure. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. The pressure on university entrance. I can understand why some might be tempted to go down that route. But I think fundamentally... Uh, I can't point, I don't know of examples where that has happened because it'd be a pretty poor head Mm -hmm. and a pretty poor school that was chasing grades and not thinking about whether it's the right thing to be teaching. Because I think the great value and the great virtue of independence is exactly what you said, Mm -hmm. that you can break free from the straitjacket of an orthodoxy that may not be right. I hope that's not being too naive. <laughs> and you're going to come back quoting countless examples. Look, there'll be people who disagree with me on coursework. My subjects, English language, English, yes. I, I taught lang- English language, yes. English literature. You're in a situation now of English language yeah. where I haven't, you know, I, I, all I know is from looking at schools' websites, but it does seem like the majority of independent schools do uh, English language. They do the, the coursework option, yeah. which is a 40% option. And look, I've spoken to, to heads and teachers, they will say that's actually educationally the right thing to do. I'm not a great fan of coursework, yeah. although I think continuous assessment is quite important. Yeah. Uh, but that, well, that's not being too contradictory. But yeah. I, I think the problem with coursework is if, if you narrowly drill down mm-hmm. to what it has to be, that's bad education. Mm-hmm. But if you use coursework as an opportunity to take them beyond what they need to do and to open their eyes, then it's a very good thing. You know, in, in, even in my subject, in history, you know, the individual study and these sorts of things, there's no doubt at all that some schools made it, you know, not quite like the history of Manchester United Football Club, but, but, there, are, but there are ways in which you could create a, a much easier thing. But I think it's incumbent on the best teachers and schools to challenge. I would agree with all of that. I absolutely would. Um, and in fact, I was at a recent, really interesting paper presented by someone at AQA, I think, where they looked at A-level English Lit and showed that the coursework, disproportionately, schools was choosing to write it on the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Gilman. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as a text, but it is very short, yes. <laughs> and it's much shorter than a lot of other options. Sure. Um, and they called it the yellow wallpaper effect. Yeah. The problem is, I would agree with you, coursework does offer the opportunity for those great enrichment opportunities, yeah. but you get the race to the bottom in that if, every, if, if a school looks around and goes, 
well, they're all doing the yellow wallpaper. If I'm going to do Finnegan's Wake, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not being fair to my students. Yeah. We better do the yellow wallpaper. Yeah. That, that's kind of the, the, the problem. No, I agree. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think the trouble is if, if we always give in to that, life is pretty poor. And so I think, I think there are enough examples of schools that provide the challenge. But I agree. But I, I think coursework done properly is very exciting. And that's why the extended project, you know, when we were involved with that, with the perspectives mm. courses we set up at rugby, they were stunning because you have to teach people the philosophy and, 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 and how to think and, and how to write you know, a, a proper piece of thought through research. But you can assess it and to assess it to get around the chat GTP problems, you do a viva and within five minutes of talking to somebody, you know when they actually know what they're talking about. So and some of the best moments of my educational life are listening to pupils being questioned on their EPQs. And again, they were very, very attractive for universities who were selected universities because, of course, these people tended to choose a topic that straddled mm -hmm. the narrow you know, confine of a discipline. You know, yeah. we're, we're both right, I suspect. But, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be... You're being much more hard-nosed. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to be I think, optimistic. I think the thing I'd say is someone who is, as I say, supportive of independence for the reasons that I said, yeah. which is that yes. it, it's a very important bulwark in the system yeah. And, yeah. and a guard against the yes. state sector potentially you know, going down a rabbit hole of bad yes. ideas, is that the, the independent sector then has to show that it's using its independence to, I would say, promote academic excellence yes. and not just to find loopholes for their own students. I agree. And if there's a perception, even if it isn't yeah. completely justified, in, if people in the state sector think, well, all they're doing is trying to find the loopholes, that is very damaging for the independence. And as someone who would like to see that independence preserved, I think that's, that's, that's my concern. I agree, but perception reality is, yeah. is a really... Yeah. Yeah. I and I would say there is some reality yeah, to uh, it, and, and, yeah. and perhaps not course, as much as... Of course, there's going to be. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. I'm not yeah, yeah. naive enough to think that, but, yeah, I, but yeah. I just think that, yeah. as with you know, what is an independent school... Yeah. Enormous diversity within the exactly. sector. An enormous diversity of yeah. choices yeah. within there. Yeah. And, and sometimes the people who get the attention exactly. are not representative I agree. of the wider choices being made. Yeah. I think that's very true as well. Some people would critique the independent sector for not being expansionist enough and say that some of the risks it's facing today are partly down to the fact that they haven't got that large bulwark of parents who have got children, are invested in, in the sector or who at least feel that it's a possible aspiration for them, that it's become too dependent on an elite and too dependent on an international elite too. And then other people would say that the sector's actually been too focused on, on expansion, but expansion overseas and in franchising and in, in chasing money abroad. What would you say about this? Do you think there have been missteps? Do you think franchising has been a misstep? Do you think the schools should have been trying to build a, a greater uh, plant base within the UK? If you don't mind me saying, I think you're falling into the classic trap of thinking <laughs> that independent schools are full of elite children, whereas the overwhelming majority of independent schools, the fees are eleven to 13000 and it's, it's aimed at much more the aspirational classes. So you're doing this the standard journalist, politician, anti <laughs> Independent school, um, so I think so. That would be my first my first point. I mean, I think there are lots of parents, like Rishi Sunak's parents, who are you know, extraordinary aspirational. And I think that, I think there are. I think a lot of schools, the major, overwhelming majority of independent schools, are catering for the non-elite, as we would define elite. So, in answer to your second question about the expand, because we talked, we touched on this because A levels seen as the gold standard. UK schools are seen as gold standard. 
and there's almost an insatiable appetite for brands going overseas. I mean, the problem that schools have encountered is the fickle nature uh, of the geopolitical world that we live in, that some regions that were once very attractive, either for people's coming or for schools to going to set up, change very quickly. And we're living in incredibly uncertain times. We talked this afternoon. So I think that, that is an issue. But I think, I, mean, I can't remember the exact figure, but there's an extraordinary number of international schools now that are operating. And when you talk to parents who choose those schools, they're doing it because they, they value what this country stands for. For, for some of us who are sort of more cynical and more questioning, we, we might sort of have a wry smile, but it's a genuinely felt belief. But that tends to be the preserve of the bigger schools that are operating in that, and your, your smaller schools just would not have the resource or the bandwidth to do that. As a historian, this is this next election, which is going to happen at some point next year. In my first election, I voted in was 1979, so I mean that was a pretty seismic election. You know, and we had this, the second closest one, of course, is the election of, of Mr. Blair, and as is looking likely, you know, the election you know, of Mr. Starmer. I mean, so nothing is a certainty in politics or in life, but it, I think it would be a surprise to most of us if, if Labour didn't win the next election. And that's going to be a really interesting time for the country on every level. And of course, you know, for the independent sector, this is, this is a very real challenge because there's no doubt at all that what they have said on VAT will happen. And it, it could, you know, there could be a finance bill introduced after the first budget. So VAT could be applied you know, late spring, early summer 2025. So that, that is you know, a live threat. But I don't think it would matter how much, you know, if, if, if we accepted the premise of what you said, how much you've been building this, this sort of feeling within the community. If it's any, any figure from, say, 5 to 20% added to fees, that's going to make them prohibitively expensive on every level. And, you know, and, and surveys would suggest that potentially up to 50% of parents will struggle. Fees is a real issue. I mean, the thing that would give me sleepless nights when I said Master Westminster was how much the fees were. But London's a bubble. I, I find it profoundly depressing um, how expensive the fees were. And I've often used to speak out against the sort of the nuclear arms race of capital projects because, frankly, it's outrageous. Why do you need you know, an Olympic-sized swimming pool or whatever it happens to be? But that's the world we live in. So that, that's a real issue is affordability of fees. We touched on the issue, you know, the perception of university entrance. You know, we have issues around, you know, I've mentioned geopolitical factors a moment ago, but geopolitical factors, we, we've lived through it you know, with the war in Ukraine, the impact on energy prices. I mean, that's a huge thing to the costs of, of, of any institution, but particularly to independent schools. But for schools, the whole sustainable question and green point is, is expensive. And when you're, if you're in historic buildings, it is expensive. Um, so I mean, there, there are all sorts of issues there. And then there are all sorts of interesting you know, other other factors. You know, we're, see, we're going to see a decline in boarding. We're seeing a decline in prep schools. But we're we're seeing interesting things where there's been an increase in SEM pupils going to independent schools because again perception reality you know, that they they're getting better treatment. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a decline of single sex, a rise of co-ed. Um, so I mean, the, the, there there are all sorts of interesting headwinds. And so schools are going to have to I hate the expression, but squeeze the assets. They're going to have to look creatively at other ways in which they can diversify and, and think about costs and you know, TPS for schools still in the TPS. There's another huge rise coming up, and so it goes on. So I think you know, these are very real 
issues that the sector faces. But as we sort of touched on, th this is not the first time it's mm -hmm. happened in the history mm -hmm. of independent schools. Yes. Um, and it's an interesting thing you know, that we're going to see a contraction, but we'll see some interesting imaginative new models emerging. We're already seeing that. You know, the Girls' Day School Trust is, a very, is, is very well set. You know, prep schools emerging, senior schools taking them on. There's all sorts of interesting things. And we're going to see the, you know, the continued threat to 13+. plus. So I think you know, when you look at all those you know, long years ago when I was teaching common entrance, that's going to be a dying exam, whether we like it or not, because schools will be very much more traditional schools as in the maintained sector, 11 mm -hmm. to 18. So I think, you know, th but these, these, these are interesting times, and, it, and, and it's a terrible thing to say, but I'm, I'm not enjoying it, but it's quite interesting to observe it mm -hmm. now I finish my first career on the front line. But I have enormous confidence that the, the right schools will survive and will continue to make a very real difference and a positive contribution to the to the country. But when we re-meet in 20, 30 years, perhaps, <laughs> we can revisit that. I look forward to it. Absolutely. Absolutely.